0: Good morning. Will you please open for a final time to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to finish this chapter today, and Lord willing, embark on chapter 6 just before Pastor John gets back from sabbatical. The text for today is verses 43 through 48. Allow me to read that to you as you follow along in the scriptures, please. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Well, it's hard not to get back at someone who puts you down or hurts your feelings. Um, We considered last week how Jesus would exhort us to respond to those who insult us and misuse us. We have a reflex to protect ourselves when we are being wounded, whether physically, emotionally, relationally, mentally. But last week we saw Jesus teach us that we're to abound with grace to those who insult and inconvenience us because God has abounded in grace to us when we were his enemies. And today Jesus is stretching us to the extremes in this department when he commands us to love our enemies. But Jesus doesn't command what he doesn't himself do and he doesn't leave us to our own strength to do what he commands. he supplies what he commands. So when he says to his disciples, which is all of us who follow him by faith, when he says, love your enemies, we know that we have all of the resources of heaven through Christ at our disposal to do what we cannot in ourselves do. Consider what we just heard read from John 13. I mean, just a few short hours before Jesus would be betrayed by Judas to crucifixion. Uh, to being tormented with whips and death in the most painful way, he stooped down in love and washed Judas' feet. And he did, this, he did this knowing full well what Judas was about to do. And even though his disciples were not his enemies, he knew that these men whose feet he was washing would just a few hours later use those feet to run away and leave him alone as he was in his darkest hour. Jesus is the one who loved supremely to the point of dying for his enemies so that, he could be brought, so that they could be brought into his father's family and saved from their sins. Well, as we consider this passage today, we come to the end of the, the second major section of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you remember back. I don't preach all that often. I mean, I have this summer because John's been gone. But, uh, you know, it's been quite a while since we've been in Sermon on the Mount because uh, I only preach a few times a year. And so we started back in 2018, and I proposed to you a brief outline to keep the Sermon on the Mount in view. And what I suggested to you was that we could outline it like this. First, in verses 3 through 16 of chapter 5, we have what we could call the regenerate kingdom citizens. And that was a way simply to say that Jesus is talking to those who are his people, redeemed by grace, through faith. He's not talking to people who don't know him. He's not talking to people who are dead in their sins. He's talking to and commanding in the Sermon on the Mount people who are born again. This is a Christian sermon to Christian people, citizens of his kingdom, where he reigns as king. And then in the section that we've been looking at in uh, great detail this summer, um, we've looked at kingdom citizens' love of neighbor, the commands in the sections that Jesus is talking about here largely have to do with how we respond to those around us because of how God has responded to us in Christ. And the section we're about to embark on in just a couple of Sundays is Kingdom Citizens Love of God, and that's chapter 6, where we now look at our relationship to God in giving to the poor, in prayer, fasting, trusting our Heavenly Father who is worth our trust, because he never gives us cause to be anxious, but he always cares for us. And then finally, in chapter 7, we have the obedient faith of kingdom citizens, as Jesus very clearly says that if you love me, you will do what I am commanding. If you follow me, it will make a difference in your life. These aren't just nice words that you can take or leave. Discipleship is all in with the Jesus who gave all for us. And this summer, we've been looking at the second section here, how kingdom citizens love their neighbors. We've seen that Jesus shows us how the gospel shapes our anger, our purity, our marriages, our words, our response to insult. And today, he closes out this section with some pretty incredible teaching about how the gospel shapes the way that we treat our enemies. And so to track with what Jesus is saying here to us, we'll do three things. First, we're going to look at how the scribes the keepers of God's word in Jesus' day, how they had distorted God's teaching on love. Then we're gonna look at how God's love differs from man's love. And then finally, we'll distill all of this down to see how we can reflect the love of God to our enemies. So let's see how in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees were distorting the love of God. How are they getting it wrong? Well, Jesus tells us. In verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, all through these six sections in Matthew 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has gone back to the word of God, particularly the law of Moses. And he's taught his disciples what God actually meant by what he said, instead of what the scribes said that God meant which actually they were getting wrong altogether. Most of the time, they actually quoted God's word correctly. They were getting the letter of the law right, but they were missing the point entirely by twisting it. And today's passage is no exception, except that now we do have a little bit of a twist. So the scribes today, in, the, in what Jesus is quoting, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, they were partly right and then partly very wrong. Okay, so what they were doing is they're going back to God's word and they're seeing that God did indeed command his people to love their neighbor. That command is right in the heart of Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, 18, the Lord says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, when this command concludes a section of scripture that teaches Israel what they should and should not do in order to live just um, or righteous lives as God's people, to reflect his holy character. In fact, his holy character is the whole reason for the commands, and so the kind of the bedrock to understand what actually holds all these commands up, because they're not just willy-nilly, they actually mean something, and they mean something because of what is said at the beginning of Leviticus 19. Here's the reason. For all of this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now this is just good theology. You see, God's people are made to reflect God's character. He is holy, therefore we must be holy. And at the heart of what holiness looks like is loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus tells us clearly this is the sum of the whole law. If you want to boil all of the hundreds of commands down to just two things, it looks like that. Love God and love people. By the way, this is sometimes where people get it wrong. They, they think that sometimes the gospel is love God, love people, but make, make it very clear in your mind. The gospel is is that God's only son came to die in place of sinners who break the commands to love God and love people so as a summary of the law not the gospel we have love God and love people in fact we love people because we love God and if you do that in each situation you'll be walking in obedience to all of God's commands because that's what they're all about We have to define our terms the way that God does, and we'll do that in just a moment. There's a lot of things that pass for love these days that actually have nothing to do with love. But here's where the scribes get tricky. Okay, this is exactly the kind of word games they're playing. See, we've seen throughout the summer just how sneaky these keepers and teachers of the Bible had become over time. They were the, maybe they were the originators of what we call hermeneutical gymnastics, you know, when someone's handling a scripture text and you go, how in the world did you get that from that? And, they, well, you, you understand, in the first century, this word meant that, and it's different from how we understood it. But, and you're just like, okay, repent and believe the gospel, because you're just, <laughs> you're totally going off the path. You know, and, and they had said, we've seen how they've done this, right? They set up a complex system of how to swear an oath without actually having to keep your word at all. And Jesus addressed that in the Sermon on the Mount. They'd also come up with a system of easy divorce, completely ignoring the incredibly high standards God had set for marriage. They thought they'd figured out a way to honor God while taking personal revenge on people who offended them. And here Jesus shows how the scribes corrupted God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. And notice the first way that they did this. So Jesus is quoting the popular teaching of the day. And what does he say? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they were saying. Well, notice what the scribes had left out. What, what, what is missing about Leviticus 19 18 here in this? How about the words, as yourself? See, as yourself gets awfully difficult. To love somebody else as yourself is very costly. They, don't, they didn't want to put themselves on the line, so they took that out and they just said, love your neighbor, okay? So, so they omitted part of the command. But where it gets really nefarious is um, what they do next. They not only omitted something, but they added something. What did they add? You shall hate your enemy. You might think, well, I, I don't know, I did my Bible reading plan in, in the Law of Moses earlier this year, but I don't recall reading that, and you'd be right, because that's not in there. There is no command anywhere in scripture to hate your enemy. But here's how, if you're a scribe, here's how you, doing some tricky gymnastics, you find hate your enemy in the command to love your neighbor. Two things to do that. First, you might rightly understand that when you're reading a command, like let's take from the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so there's a positive command there, right? Uh, well, I'm sorry, a negative command. You shall not do this thing, which is commit adultery. But we would also be correct in saying that on the flip side, something else is commanded. If we're not to commit adultery, what are we commanded to do? To be faithful to our spouse, right? And, so, and that's a good way of reading the Ten Commandments. Well, the scribes were doing, uh, taking that principle too far, and they were misapplying that with Leviticus 19:18. So, when they said, hey, God says, love your neighbor as yourself, the flip side must be, hate your enemy who's not your neighbor. Very tricky. Well, here's another way that they maybe got away with this. See, the Psalms was the worship book of Israel. It's the worship book of the Bible. It teaches us how to praise, how to confess, how to plead with God in the midst of darkness. And the Psalms talk about God's hatred for the wicked. So, for example, in Psalm 5, David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Hmm. What does that mean? See, David elsewhere talks about his hatred for hard-hearted evildoers. The scribes knew that. They knew the Psalms. And so they took that and they twisted it into justification for their hatred of their personal enemies. And what they failed to recognize was that God's hatred of evildoers, th- those who hard-heartedly are working against his purposes in the world, David as the head of Israel, the representative of God's holy people, praying on their behalf, writing psalms as their representative, his hatred of evildoers was totally oriented toward his jealousy for God's glory. God, David, their hatred of evildoers, Jesus' anger at um, merchants in the temple who were robbing God's poor people and keeping them from worship, had to do with the fact that they were intentionally working against the holiness of God. The scribes didn't care about that. The scribes were being totally personal with this whole thing. And so they turned this holy wrath into personal hatred. And they totally warped the idea of love in the process. Thankfully, Jesus corrects this. He corrects this by teaching his disciples what true love looks like. So he shows them that the kind of love scripture commands is actually a divine love that originates with God himself. It's a divine love that originates with God himself. Because God is love. And it's not just a love toward your neighbors. It's a love toward your enemies. It's a love toward your enemies as well. Now, this naturally prompts us to ask a question. What question? Well, who's my neighbor and who's my enemy? You know, Jesus was asked that once. Uh, There was a lawyer who came up to him and asked him that question. And we couldn't do better to understand how God understands our neighbors and our enemies than to turn to Luke 10. Let's turn there together for just a moment. We're gonna see how Jesus answers this lawyer and he gets very specific And so he leaves little doubt for us, in fact, no doubt at all, about who our neighbors and who our enemies are. See, up to this point, the Jews had a very specific idea of who was a neighbor and who was an enemy. And when the Jews read God's command to love their neighbor, they would have thought about, first, other Jews, because neighbors were those who were in your affinity group. They were those nearby. They were those whom you identified with. And so, if you're, for example, if you're part of the Rotary Club, then fellow Rotarians would be your neighbor. If you're in a a biker club, um, then fellow bikers in that club would be your neighbor. If you're a fisherman, it would be other fishermen. As a Jew, especially since you were occupied by Rome, fellow Jews, generally speaking, would be considered by you to be your neighbor. On the other hand, your enemies were people outside of your affinity group. They were people who were not like you. Gentiles were your enemy. Those half-breed Samaritans were your enemy, so much so that you would make sure that uh, you specified with Google Maps that you didn't want to go the most direct route to get up north. You would take the, you would take the roundabout way, throw the extra hour on there because we don't want to deal with those Samaritans. Anyone really who was your opponent or your agitator who was coming against you in some way was your enemy. So along comes a student of the law, okay, a lawyer, and he wanted to know from Jesus what it takes to inherit eternal life. Jesus answers, you have to keep the law perfectly, and that boils down to love God and love neighbor. This lawyer, not really getting the hint that maybe he was falling way short just by breathing as a human being who's sinful, He decided to persist, and he thought, well, let's define the boundaries here a little bit so that we can make sure that we're walking the line and not have to love too far. And then maybe I'll get in. So Jesus says, you want to play that game? Let me tell you a story. Okay, let's see what Jesus says. So beginning in verse 25, it says, And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, "'You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself.' And he said to him, "'You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live.' But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "'And who is my neighbor?' Jesus replied, "'A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead.' and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "'Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, "'I will repay you when I come back.'" Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, see, the Jews and the Samaritans were fundamental enemies, I mean, they were arch enemies. Jews didn't like them, Samaritans didn't like the Jews, they didn't really interact if they could avoid it, which makes some of the stuff that Jesus does and says so shocking. Now, what would you expect if you have a Jew, because remember, we're on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is smack in the middle of Jewish territory. So you've got a Jew who gets robbed, he's left for dead. Who do you expect to help him? How about a priest, a spiritual leader, the person who's supposed to shepherd and care for the Jews? I don't know, what does he do? He passes by on the other side. He not only doesn't love him, he actively goes out of his way not to love him. Well, what about the Levites? They were the, 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 the people who helped in worship. No, same thing as the priest. Maybe they were going to a conference and they just didn't have time. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Either way, they fall, fall, short. They fall far short. But then you've got this Samaritan, the guy you think would come up and look at the guy and go, It's a Jew, he's getting what he deserves. It's the Samaritan who stoops down and at great cost to himself, he ministers to this man. He saves his life and then he goes above and beyond to make sure that his bills are paid on the road to recovery. (laughs) Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. This is it. Your enemy is your neighbor. In fact, everybody who comes across your path is your neighbor, whether friend or foe. That's whom you are to love love your enemies you see now we're in a position to understand the love of god which is the basis of what jesus tells us here in matthew 5 getting back to matthew 5 in verses 44 and forty-five. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I say to you, so in contrast to this whole love your neighbor, hate your enemy debacle that you've been taught, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, you see, just as Jesus prompts us to ask who our neighbors and enemies are, he also prompts us to ask what it means to love like God. What is love? Well, the word that Jesus uses for love is our most familiar New Testament word for love, agape, which means unconditional love that chooses to do good to someone according to their true need. It's an unconditional love that chooses to do good to someone according to their true need. This is how Jesus says that redeemed citizens of his kingdom are to behave toward each other and toward their enemies. We saw this in action in the upper room as Jesus loves Judas and washes his feet. It's a love that may or may not include the feelings that we so often associate with love. Oftentimes we say, well, I fell in love or I was overcome with love or my heart welled up with love. but biblically here, this is not the kind of thing that we see. We see a love that whether or not there's any warmth toward this person, I mean, they're your enemy after all, and we don't generally have warm feelings toward our enemies. It's a love that chooses to do what is best for them in spite of how sometimes you may feel about it. You see, this is what God does. God, Jesus says, makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So just the way that the Father treats all people, whether they're evil or good, righteous or unrighteous, God, Jesus says, use that example to then go decide how to, to, to act toward your enemies. Now, this is kind of, we, we kind of take these things for granted, right? The sun, okay, it shines. And in Yakima, it shines a lot. Rain, it falls, except in Yakima, it doesn't fall a lot. Either way, though, we know what a blessing it is, right? Like, without it, without the rain, we get drought. Without the sun, we die. And, you know, so we, we look at life-sustaining kindness from God, and he's sustaining the lives of not only his people, but also his enemies. He, it's his sun. He doesn't have to make it rise. He doesn't have to give it to us. He does. It's his rain. He doesn't have to give it, but he does. And we've been praying that he would do so in the West Coast and kind of get this drought over with. But what do we do with it as his people when he pours out these blessings on us? Well, we thank him for it, we praise him, and we receive it with humble grace. Now, what do his enemies do with those same gifts? They ignore him, they take the sustenance that it provides, and then they work against his purposes in the world. And how does God respond? He keeps bringing the sun up, he keeps pouring down the rain, he keeps sustaining life. He is a gracious and good God to all. And this is what theologians refer to as common grace, common grace. Last week we saw that grace equals favor, right? You remember that? So grace equals favor. It's God's favor shown towards someone, whether they deserve it or not. Common grace is God's goodness to all people. It's his goodness to all people. It's different from saving grace, which is for his elect only. You know, we're told by Paul in Ephesians 1 that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in love. So there's a sense in which God has a very special love and a special grace for his people that he doesn't have for all. But there's a very real sense in which he has love and grace for all that comes in the form of good gifts that people enjoy, even when they couldn't care less. And Jesus' point is that that's the touchstone for our loving our enemies. It's the Father's love for all. And we who are his children through faith in Jesus are to love like that. Because when you do that, it shows what family you belong to. So think of a father telling his son as he's going off to college, protect the family name, son. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. People know where you're from. Sons oftentimes bear a resemblance to their fathers. And in the same way, we are to show our spiritual father. We show by loving our enemies what spiritual DNA we have. Listen to the way that the Apostle John puts this in 1 John 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. By this it is evident, okay, this is the evidence, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." The love of the father is a love that does good to those who hate him and are his enemies. And we who are his redeemed children should bear the family resemblance. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to bear the image of our father toward our enemies? Well, Jesus specifically tells us, both here in Matthew 5, where he says, pray for those who persecute you. In Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke 6, he, he, he breaks it down even more and he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. See, the idea is that because we're in Christ, we treat our enemies the way Christ treated his enemies by doing good to them. We can leave vengeance and judgment in the hands of God because do you know that God is just? He is the judge of all the earth he will never let any injustice fall to the ground. And actually, that's really good news for us. Because every single time I've tried to set myself up as judge, jury, and executioner, it always ends badly. Perhaps you've had that same experience yourself. We know that in the court of heaven, all injustice, all sin will be answered. For those who are in Christ, it is answered at the cross on the shoulders of the sinless Son of God when he cried out, it is finished, was making a legal declaration that the debt has been paid, justice has been done, and there is only mercy for those who trust in him. But for those who don't, who look God's gospel in the face and say, no, thank you, justice will be for them in hell forever. We can trust God to do what is right and look to him for grace to love our enemies because we were the enemies of God when he loved us. This is what shows God our Father to a sinful world. Now, This goes without saying, but I'm gonna say it anyway. This is very different from the kind of love the world is dealing out. This is very different from man's love. You see, God's love is unconditional. Man's love is conditional. And this is how Jesus describes the love that the world shows in verses 46 through 47. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Or in most Greek manuscripts, it also says tax collectors there as well. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. But either way, the idea is that even the people whom the Jews hated the most, Even they show love to others. It's just ordinary love that people generally show. It's the kind of love that loves those who love you. It's not hard, it's not costly. When someone smiles at you, you generally smile back. If someone says hi to you, you say hi back. If someone friends you on Facebook, you friend them back. If they do you good, you do them good. Even the tax collectors do this. The tax collectors! Have you heard about these guys? These guys were blood traders to their own people. They were Jews by birth and Romans by choice. There could be nothing more despicable to a Jew than that. They sold themselves out to Rome, to the Roman occupiers, and they went and they would, as a group, they would generally take far more than the tax rate so that they could line their pockets with their poor Jewish brothers' and sisters' money. And if anybody objected, You couldn't really do much because they had the full weight of the roman military behind them it was awful and it was those kinds of people that jesus came to save one of them became one of his apostles matthew who wrote this jesus says that if even these hated traitors love those who love them then what sets us apart as christians from even the worst people around if that's the only kind of love we show Well, the implied answer is that only the love of the Father in his people sets apart his people from the world. See, to love your enemies is not only something that the tax collectors don't do, it's not even something that the holiest of the holy in Israel, so to speak, the the, the scribes and the Pharisees, not even they did that. And so we can see where Jesus is coming from when he says, you as my people, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees love your enemies. They don't. But it's what God intended all along. And in essence, Jesus is saying, be like your heavenly father by loving your enemies. And then he distills what that means. He brings it all down in a boiling point in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let that sink in. Just take a minute, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see with that he sums up not only this section on loving your enemies but all six sections from verse 20 on through the end of chapter 5. This is what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This is underneath all the commands about anger, lust, marriage, oaths, retaliation, enemies. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In fact, that's an even tighter summary of all the scriptural commands, even than love of God and love of neighbor. That's it. Be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Like Leviticus 19, too, says, You will be holy, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. To which all God's people said, Good luck. I couldn't even make it out the door to church on the Lord's day without getting that wrong. How in the world is that supposed to work? Well, friends, we've just hit the nerve of the Christian faith. We've just hit how in the Sermon on the Mount, everybody who's ever tried to apply the Sermon on the Mount, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, were dead in the water before they began. We've just figured out why the social justice warriors who apply the Sermon on the Mount to society and government, they don't even have a shot. They don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because no one is perfect the way the Father is perfect. Not even close. So at the end of chapter five, Jesus brings us back full circle to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the moment Jesus said, you shall be perfect, we knew we were in trouble apart from him. And so this is, this is the brilliance of the Christian life. The holier we get, the more like Jesus we become, the more we need to go back to the gospel. Because we will either drive ourselves crazy trying to attain a standard that we're more sensitive to than ever. I mean, aren't you more sensitive to your sin the holier you get in your daily walk with Christ? And it drives you to despair if you, if you lose sight for even a moment that, that our only hope is Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen for us. We have to come back to Jesus We are the poor in spirit who realize that we have empty accounts before God. In fact, on our own, we're running a deficit. But thanks be to God, the fullness of Jesus' righteousness is given to us in the gospel. And so when we see that Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect, we ask how? And Jesus' answer is the same as that to Nicodemus. When he came to Jesus inquiring about his ministry, Jesus said what? You must be born again. You must be born again. God must do this work in you. God, the Holy Spirit, must give you the new birth and give you a new heart and give you a new nature. God himself must come to you while you are his enemy and make you his friend. God himself must now give you a heart that hates the sin you once loved and that trusts in the Savior you once rejected. You must be born again. Only then will you be poor in spirit and hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. And if you've never trusted in Christ, then you haven't been born again. If you've never turned from your sins and followed Jesus, you've not been born again. And if you haven't been born again, then you're still in your sins. And if that causes you concern, then I'll tell you what to do. Pray to the God who in his sovereignty and grace gives the new birth. Father, I need To be born again and I can't do it please give me Jesus see what he does you see when God gives someone the new birth he also gives them the righteousness of Christ he also gives them the righteousness of Christ you must be given righteousness and friends this is actually good news because Jesus says you must be perfect you are not perfect Jesus is perfect you must be given his righteousness. And that's exactly what we get in the gospel. In in one of my favorite summaries of the gospel in all of scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the apostle Paul says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the whole logic of the Sermon on the Mount is that you can't obey the Sermon on the Mount apart from going to the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus And when we come to Jesus, God sees us as perfect and complete in him once and for all. And he preserves us in that perfection through Christ. He does not let us go. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He clothes us in his righteousness. You must be born again and you must be given righteousness. And if you take Jesus seriously when he says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, then you also must be growing in righteousness. So there's two kinds of righteousness there. We just switched, okay, we just turned a corner. So there's the, the positional righteousness of those who are in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And then there's the practical righteousness of those who day by day are becoming more like who they are in Jesus. Here in verse 48, we have to be careful because Jesus is not teaching, okay, he is not teaching that you can have some kind of sinless perfection in this life. Pretty much every single verse in the whole Bible teaches against that idea. Okay? He is not teaching that we can be perfect this side of heaven. But we are headed for perfect righteousness as we're getting closer to the day when we will see him face to face. Remember what we read in 1 John 3, 3, when we see him, we will be like him. But our Christian lives on this side of eternity are spent becoming more like Christ and growing in the image of our perfect Father slowly and surely. As Hebrews ten fourteen exhorts us, Strive, okay, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, how do we strive for peace with everyone? I have an idea. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor along the way. And I heard a preacher once, it was Voddie Bakum, say, hey, if your marriage is in trouble, and you say, well, I can't love my wife, she's being too difficult. Okay, how about love your neighbor? She's your closest neighbor. You know, she's not even, she is, she is being hostile toward me. She's my enemy. He's like, that's okay, Jesus got that covered too. Love your enemy. Pretty much we have no out here. Strive for peace with everyone. And when you despair that you can't look upward, you have help. Jesus Christ, the righteous and strive for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So we return always to the good news that our Father in heaven loved us in his Son when we were hostile toward him. And because of that, we can love our enemies, because God loved us in Christ when we were his enemies. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you do not keep us in the dark, you do not leave us in our sins and you do not leave us guessing what it means to walk with you. We praise and we thank you that you gave your son our sinless savior for us, that we who were your enemies might be made righteous and might be brought into your family and made to be your children, given the new birth, a new nature, a new spirit, a new heart. We confess it so often, we do not live in consistency with that heart, we do not live out of the abundance of your grace, though we could with your help, but we often choose to walk in darkness, being hostile toward our enemies, and failing to love our neighbors. Forgive us. Father, help us. You've redeemed us, and you've called us to this, and we know that what you call us to, you give us strength for. So help us to walk in the fullness of the gospel, loving those who hate us, blessing those who persecute us, doing good to those who curse us, so that we would show them who our Savior is, who did those things to us when we were hostile to him, and that the world might know the gospel that it so desperately needs, for Jesus is our only hope, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.